Yo! What's going on, everybody? Good morning. It is a great day to be a fight fan. We have got a lot of UFC fight cards coming up, and it starts with UFC Vegas 85, Roman Delidze taking on Nasruddin Imavov. Thank you to everybody for your patience today. With the stream, got started a little late because my camera is not working as normal. If you guys are regulars here, you know my camera quality is normally a little bit higher, but ended up not working for me right before the stream. Didn't want to delay it any further. So without further ado, we're going forward with the webcam today and just got to roll with what we've got. So with that being said, if you guys are new here, welcome aboard. Appreciate you guys being here, trying it out with the morning stream today. Going to see uh, how this works out and give it a try. If people like it, we'll stick with it. If not, we'll go back to the normal time slot in the evening. But in any case, we are going to break down the show like we always do. We're going to start on the first look with our uh, you know, main event breakdown and work our way down the card. If you guys haven't checked it out already, I did do a you know 45-minute or so in-depth breakdown on the main event for this card uh, where I just started giving some of my thoughts. I did watch a little tape. I broke that down on Twitter as well, at Liam Picks Fights, if you're interested in some of the specific footage. So I won't belabor the point on the main event, but what I want to stress for people that are new here is that this is my first look, okay? I'm going to do more tape study. I'm going to do more research over the course of the week, but what I like to do is I like to start the week by looking at the matchups on paper, talking about how we feel about them before we get influenced by the propaganda, by the fight week nonsense. And in addition, looking at the trends uh, that we have to look at at these fights and see what they can tell us about how we should approach our betting and about how we should think about these matchups moving forward. So um, without further ado, let's start with this main event, guys. And it's a fascinating fight. The more I look into this fight, um, the more competitive that I think it is on paper. You know, I was surprised to see Nasruddin Mavov, you know, as a pretty comfortable favorite here, given how his last main event in the Apex went was not a great showing from him against Sean Strickland. We've seen Sean Strickland ascend to that main event uh, championship, right? He got the middleweight title, just lost a close fight to Drickus Duplessis in another title fight. So Sean has proven he's right at that level, you know, in the top five, top 10 in the division. And Nasruddin Imavov just wasn't there that night with the requisite skills, cardio, game plan to compete with a guy like Sean. But if we look at the rest of Nasruddin's body of work, you know, he's done a good job implementing his wrestling and grappling supremacy over a lot of his opponents. That's interesting because he's known as the Russian sniper, but he's gone out there many times and used his wrestling uh, and grappling to be successful and also to use uh, those positions to leverage a lot of impactful ground and pound. We've seen Edmund Shabazian get finished via uh, crucifix, right? It was, uh, you know, a somewhat competitive fight, but once he was able to establish that top position, get Edmund flat back on the ground, he was able to beat him up and land a lot of significant ground and pound, do damage quickly. In that fight, we saw another ground and pound stoppage against Ian Heinish. We saw his best work against Joaquin Buckley in a decision come from the mount, come from the back mount with the wrist control, uh, and also from Imavov, uh, you know, getting his own takedowns and then a back take to a rear naked choke attempt to end round two. We've seen that Imavov is not a slouch in the grappling department, um, but I would also say that he does have some, you know, uh, favorable matchups, let's say, where he's shown off his grappling in the UFC. I mean, Edmund Shabazian, He's got a lot of physical strength. Uh, you know, he's not horrible technically, but he just does not have the cardio, the capacity 
um, the cardiovascular ability to compete for 15 minutes. And so when you see a guy, I, I predicted that Imavov was going to go out there and, and dominate that fight. Um, and when you look, there's been a lot of times where Edmund has, uh, you know, broken under pressure. We saw the same thing happen against Derek Brunson. There's been a few other examples. So I think that Edmund, not a bad fighter, like I said, but maybe the physical uh, tools did not match up with where he wanted to compete. And I think that you look at Joaquin Buckley fight, Buckley's tiny, you know, like he's a guy that could definitely compete at 170 pounds, right? Uh, I, I don't mean to disparage him. He's got the barrel chest, right? It wouldn't be easy, but he just is not very tall for the division, right? He's very small compared to Imabov, and he was shooting shots from half a mile away. Um, you know, he didn't really set up most of his offense in that fight. And he really struggled to close the distance there. But what I would say is that Imavov does a pretty good job uh, of controlling distance on the feet. You know, Sean Strickland, he's one of those guys that disrespects the jab. Uh, you know, he has his own potent jab. He's not afraid to get hit. So he walks forward. He throws through the jab. That really threw off Imavov, in my view. And I think that Delizze is going to try and do the same thing. You know, he's a pressure forward guy. He's going to want to try and get in his face. He's going to want to try and push that advantage. But Imavov does tend to operate behind the jab. He does tend to operate um, often with two and three jabs at a time. He does reposition himself in the cage relative to his opponent so if the opponent tries to swarm him he'll just stick a hand out in the air uh, to keep them back and then reposition himself with lateral movement or backwards movement um, he tries to set up uppercuts and the right hand you know i think the the sniper nickname comes from that ability to set up the hand uh the rear hand quickly you know he just throws it fast um, and the jabs are what is normally setting the table for him so we have definitely seen Imavov on the ground. Shout out to Gold Caps in the chat um, with a question for the day. Shout out to our guy, Fresh Gambles, as well as What's Up, gentlemen. So to answer your question, Gold Caps, uh, yeah, we've definitely seen Imavov on the ground a number of times. You know, we haven't really seen him get taken down very much. Uh, it has happened in the Strickland fight, for example. But when you look, he's mostly been on top of his opponents. And I think that he has fairly good takedown defense. But I also think... You know, it could definitely get exploited in extended exchanges. Um, you know, it's a tricky fight from a physicality standpoint as well because you got the much older guy in Roman Delize, but he's going to be able to match the physicality and the size of a guy like Imavov. And Imavov's a pretty sizable guy for this division. Um, you know, and I think that part of the problem against Strickland was he didn't have that huge size advantage and it was at 195-pound catch weight. Uh, shout out to boys says out wrestled by Gregor Weeble. So yeah, I think that when it comes to Imavov, you know, he's a guy that's done well matchup dependent, but I don't know that we've seen that his wrestling and grappling can really translate against high level opponents. You know, you think about the Phil Hawes fight that was really concerning because it's a visual where he's constantly getting pressed up against the fence. I was uh, pretty confident in Imavov heading into that Phil Hawes fight. And I remember being so disappointed because he could have won that fight and he could have hurt Phil and he could have taken him out of the fight. But we just saw on so many occasions, you know, um, we haven't seen Imavov uh, stick it to people on the feet. You know, when he gets the finish, it tends to be on the ground. It tends to be him working there. But I did not like what I saw from him in terms of the rear naked choke fundamentals when he was on Buckley's back, you know, um, uh, something that I'm constantly looking to improve is my rear naked choke fundamentals. My chokes are not very good. 
Uh, it's something I'm cognizant of in terms of my my rear naked strangle ability. You know, I'm better at just grabbing a hold and squeezing than I am at, at uh, you know, properly applying the choke and properly securing the far wrist. But, you know, when you're a UFC level fighter and when you're competing for, you know, um, big opportunities in main events, I do think you got to be ready and prepared uh, when it comes to those things. So I'm looking at a guy in Nasruddin Imavov who's wrestling and grappling has looked great against a certain level of competition, but I don't think it's proven against this level of wrestler and grappler like Roman Delidze. So we've spent some time talking about our guy uh, Imavov. Let's let's spend some time on the game of Delidze. Delidze is a guy that is coming off what I would call a controversial unanimous decision loss to Marvin Vittori. Um, is it a, a robbery? No, I wouldn't say that. It was a very close fight. Um, I think rounds one and three were close, but they were rounds I'd give to Delidze. Uh, and I think that when you look at those uh, rounds and how he was able to approach it, you know, he, he walked Marvin down. You know, there wasn't much sophistication to it. He just came forward. He threw punches. Uh, he threw with power. He got in his face. And, um, you know, I think Marvin didn't like that. You know, I think there was a couple of times he bothered Marvin with the power and Marvin's a guy who's known historically for having a very good chin. So he was able to settle himself. You know, if that's a five round fight, I'm not sure that Marvin Vittori wants to can, you know, keep going there. You know, I, I think that, um, I didn't love the visuals that I was seeing, uh, from Marvin in that fight. I, I kind of thought that he was getting, um, you know, disheartened. And when I'm looking at a guy like uh, Roman Delizze, I, I say to myself, man, that Jack Hermanson fight, that stands out to me. He goes out there, and I like what he did in both uh, you know, rounds of that fight. So if you look at the Jack Hermanson fight, it ends in round two. And I, I thought that what we saw was a guy who understood, hey, I'm on the bottom position. I'm against a black belt. So I got to do some damage here. I can't just hang out and, and play jujitsu. So if you guys remember that fight, he goes out there, he throws a bunch of elbows to the head and all these clips I did put out uh, on Twitter as well at Liam picks fights. If you're looking for, um, you know, the clips that I'm talking about, he throws elbows to the head. And then as soon as Jack goes to defend, he then swivels his hips, goes for the arm bar. And I don't even believe guys that he was looking for an arm bar. He almost never is. Right. He just uses the arm bar as a setup to get you to pull away. Right. Some grapplers, in order to get their game off, need to be really close to you. But other guys need space. And I think that Roman Delidze needs a little bit of space, um, you know, in order to create the inversions, in order to create these weird, unique setup opportunities. But he's a real handful. You know, what he did in that fight with Jack is the first time he went underneath, he used the elbows, he used the hip swivel, he went for the arm bar. And when he didn't get it, he hip bumped nearly to the mount. But because Jack was fresh, because he's a strong guy, and because he's a black belt, he was able to get his hips back underneath him. So he just stood back up to the feet, cleared out of the position. So he goes from being underneath in the guard to getting back up to the feet using really effective grappling transitions and damaging shots from the bottom. Then you see in round two, same exchange. This guy does not care about defending takedowns. You know, um, you see a very heavy sprawl every time there's a takedown attempt against Nasruddin Imavov, right? He, he wants to control the attempt. He wants to be on top. And I think that he's a guy that relies on being on top to be an effective grappler. Nothing wrong with that. If you could always get on top, 
that's the way to go, right? Or if you can prevent your opponent from creating grappling scenarios, that's fine too. But the one danger is, you know, if you're not prepared for somebody to be underneath you, a lot of times, like I mentioned, and Mavov's having success in these fights by getting takedowns. If it's going sideways on the feet, he's bailing himself out with a takedown. But is that wise against Roman Delizze? I think that's the question of this matchup. Because if you're Nasserdin and Mavov and, you know, you're trying to coach him up, I would be giving him, uh, you know, the game plan of, hey, man, stick him with the jab and then move away, throw a leg kick and then move away, stick him with the jab and then move away. That's what I would do to try and beat a guy like Roman Delizze because, frankly, he's a real handful. He's a really dangerous guy. I would try and chip away at him over time. I try and break him down piece by piece and just use your superior speed to try and beat him up. I think that that is a wise path to victory. But what I've seen from him off is that a lot of times, you know, he likes to have a little bravado. He likes to throw a lot. He likes to get into some of these exchanges. And I don't think his cardio is something to write home about either, frankly. Um, you know, so when I'm looking at it, I say to myself, man, this guy, Delidze, what I, what have I seen from him? I've seen incredible grappling transitions that are almost unreplicated in the UFC. You know, like that calf slicer situation was fantastic. But the way he was able to turn it belly down, I mean, guys, I can't imagine a worse situation in fighting than that situation that Jack Hermanson is in, right? You're in a submission where it's a, a painful uh, calf slicer submission, but moreover, you can't move. You're physically restrained. You can't get out. If you try and get out, it exerts more pressure on your calf. And then you've got a guy who's 185 pounds, probably 200 plus pounds on the night, holding your wrists and punching you in the head while your calf is trapped. I mean, it's, it's an absolute disaster. It's like a nightmare scenario uh, in fighting. So just beastly finish from Roman Delizze there. And if that was the only one he had in the UFC that involved creative grappling, maybe I just write it off as a one-off, you know, maybe Jack Hermanson just flaked that fight. But I mean, guys, Jack Hermanson has submitted multiple black belts in the UFC, you know, like he's looked very good in the grappling sequences against most guys in the UFC. But Roman Delizze was physically overwhelming. He was too good in the uh, bottom position and he just had too much depth to his game. You know, Jack is good at a bunch of skills, but he wasn't able to get to his skills. He was too busy defending. He was too busy uh, reacting. And Roman Delizze, whether it's on the feet or on the ground, he's got very dangerous offense. So I think that's a fascinating part of this matchup. We'll talk about some of these other fights from Roman Delizze real quick. The Phil Haas fight. I mean, guys, that Phil Haas fight, again, he gets taken down. And I, I have the question, like, who does it benefit? When Roman Delizze gets taken down in his recent fights, it has not benefited his opponent to get top position, right? It's been a, a massive liability. He goes and creates that armbar transition with such rapidity and fluidity that it really puts his opponents in danger and it puts him in a, um, you know, in a reactive sequence, right? And then what we saw from him is that heel hook entry. Honestly, you got to take the hat off to him in that one and say, hey, this guy's a freaking gentleman because, um, you know, he absolutely tore the, the knee of Phil Hawes and he gave him a chance to surrender, man. You know, a lot of guys uh, might have kept ripping on that and say, hey, you know, when the referee pulls me off, whatever, he knew what he had done. He knew the knee was screwed and he lets him go. He stands back up. No knee underneath him. I mean, guys, 
when we talk about why leg locks are ineffective in the UFC, I mean, most guys don't know how to do them. That's a big part of it, right? Like I could tell you leg locks will change your life, right? If you're going with the wrong guy, um, you know, if you don't know what you're doing, if you roll the wrong way, leg locks to change your life fast. Um, so I do think that Roman Delidze, incredibly dangerous leg locker, very dangerous, um, you know, with his choking series as well. He can break limbs. He can put you in really compromised joint locks. He's just a very, very savvy guy. Um, and I do think he's got more depth to his grappling, uh, more sophistication to his grappling than a guy like Imavov, frankly. Imavov can probably match him a little bit with that physicality. So that's what makes it interesting, right? We've seen other guys like a Trevin Giles, who's not a, you know, uh, a guy who's known for being the world's best grappler or something like that, go out there and shut down a lot of Delidze's grappling. Um, but I do think Delidze has been a lot more dialed in in the recent performances that we've seen. Uh, you know, we definitely saw a lot more showmanship and a lot more um, flustering about and uh, being silly in his old matches. And uh, I just think that he realized, hey, I have a short window in the UFC. I'm 35 years of age. It's time for me to, to move right now. And uh, we've seen him go out there with a cold look on his face and just send guys to the hospital over and over. Broke Kyle Dawkins' face. I mean, dropped him bad. Um, I'm getting the haircut today, Dixon. Uh, I got I got that Diego Lopez cut uh, right now, but I'm getting that haircut today, brother. I'm on the case. Uh, I appreciate the shout, though. And shout out to everybody who's rocking with us live, guys. we got 40 people here rocking with us in the early morning, 9 a.m. here on the East Coast. So I want to say cheers to everybody who's sipping a coffee. Wherever you are around the world right now, cheers. Peace, love, and chicken grease to every one of you guys. A sip of coffee, and we're right back to it. Now, we'll close out with just talking about the fact that this guy uh, broke Kyle Dox's face. I mean, it was absolutely harrowing stuff. What I think Roman Delidze has to offer, if I had to briefly summarize uh, his game and Imavov's game, here's, here's the concrete uh, details of these two guys. I think they both have similar flaws. When you look at uh, how they struggle, they both are very easy marks to the low kick, right? If either one of these guys was to commit to a low kicking strategy, I think it's much more likely to be a mob off. I think he's more mobile. I think he's a little bit more adaptable in that way. Um, I think he's a little bit more frequent of a kicker in general. So that for me is a potential game changer on the feet is the kicking sequencing. Um, Roman Delidze's kicks are something that are very unpredictable. Uh, what do I mean by that? I mean that they're hard for his opponents to predict, but they're even harder for analysts like me to predict uh, because I look at the tape and some fights he goes out there, he throws plenty of kicks. That fight against Marvin Vittori, I think he could have really benefited from throwing kicks in that fight. He didn't throw kicks. You know, he went out there just primarily to box. So when I'm looking at, at um, you know, Delidze's tape, the frustration I would say I have is I didn't see enough offensive wrestling against Vittori. I would have liked to see more, and I didn't see enough uh, volume. I would have liked to see just a touch more. He was stalking with the, the striking. You know, he's coming forward with the hands, but I think that if he can tick up that volume a little bit, if he could be a little more assertive with the offensive wrestling, um, I think that would be important. But I do think this is a guy, um, you know, he's not like a Charles Oliveira where you know, goes to the ground and the other guy has to be scared every time. But I am saying like, I don't know how many people, <laughs> excuse me, would feel really comfortable getting on top of a guy like Roman Delidze, you know, because he could do a lot of damage quick. Watch the sequencing that he does with those elbows, guys. 
he's a big guy. He generates a lot of leverage and he throws with, uh, you know, no, no, uh, compunction for his opponent. So I think, um, yeah, shout out to Noah in the chat here. Uh, hit the nail on the head. Delidze, multiple subs into KOs in the UFC. Never seen something like it. Absolutely. Um, uh, Mason says on his way to Wawa to get the coffee. Hey, cheers to that. Um, hope that you guys are all feeling good this morning. It's a beautiful day to be here. Um, and I think that this is a great fight. So the bottom line is you've got the one guy in Roman Delidze who's a sensational grappler, who's a sensational um, power hitter, you know, at this point, but he's a little bit old for the division. You know, uh, that's his his concern here. You know, it's not the youngest division overall here at middleweight, but I do think that Ramon Delidze, you know, kind of getting towards the tail end of that prime. So what he has to do is he has to make his move right now if he's going to. And Nasruddin Amavov's the kind of guy that I think he could beat. Um, I think he's going to have to fight smart. We've seen in Mavov, though, he is not a guy who's impervious, right? Like I said, the loss to Phil Hawes has aged like absolute milk. Uh, and then the Sean Strickland loss, it's not terrible, but the way it looked, he did not look like he was uh, prepared to compete, you know, over five rounds. And now he's back in a five-round setting. And Ramon Delidze, you know, he lives and trains in Las Vegas uh, for these fight camps. Whereas Nasruddin Mavov, he's at, he's at the uh, MMA factory in Paris. And frankly... Some of the grappling choices that we've seen from MMA factory fighters over the years, I have not been altogether impressed with. So I think that Imavov, this is a prove-it spot for him. Um, you know, he's the chalk favorite here. I understand it. He's the younger guy. You know, um, he's, you know, a little bit bigger on social media. He's coming in with a little bit of that, that hype and that acclaim. You know, he trains with the right guys. You know, uh, he's around the right people. But I, I just don't know um, that I see it as an easy fight for him, you know, as a fight where I'm saying I'm confident that 60% of the time he's going to go out there and win because I just think the Lindsay is a really hard guy to get one over on right now in this middleweight division. I think he's a dangerous fight for almost everybody. Uh, and I think you have to be really smart and disciplined to fight him. And I think if you get emotional, you could lose. I think if you make one mistake on the ground, you could lose. And I think that if you want to trade shots with this guy on the feet, you know, it's, it's not an easy proposition either. Um, oh, interesting nugget from our guy, Moyes. Imavov has left uh, MMA Factory. So let's pull up our guy, Nasruddin Imavov, on Instagram. Where is he training at, Moyes? If you have that information handy, I'd be very curious to know, my man. But um, even still, I, I would be curious – if he's been working on that wrestling and grappling or just continuing to work on that, um, you know, boxing heavy approach. But that is an interesting note, man. I think that's probably good for his career. Um, probably got as much as he was going to get from there. But yeah, Fernand Lopez was commented on his stuff back in June of 2023. So it seems like a more recent development. Very interesting. Dixon says, I feel like it's the numbers. Uh, steering people Roman's way. I mean, I don't know, man. Uh, Cause if I, if you just said to me, no number on this fight, like who do you think is going to win? I I would say it's a really close fight, but I would probably make it like minus minus one fifteen Roman Delizze. Um, You know, if I, like, if you didn't tell me the tale of the tape, right. If I didn't know how old these guys were and I had just watched them fight, uh, that's what I would say. You know, I'd say I, I'd probably make Roman Delizze a slight favorite here. 
Um, so that that's what makes it a compelling fight, right? Is that the hardware, um, you know, some of the cardio, some of the five round elements, we don't know exactly how that's going to play. But what I do know is I can look at some past data points and try and, you know, infer how that could relate to this fight. And, you know, one past data point is five round fight in Las Vegas. Nasruddin Imavov put on a career worst performance, arguably, against Sean Strickland. I think that that's fair to say. Um, so, yeah, that that's interesting. Oh, that uh, and Moy says he's uh, training at a new gym, but I don't understand French. Interview is on YouTube. Fair play, my man. I don't understand French either, so we'll leave that to the professionals. But overall, you guys have gotten my, um, you know, basically matchup take on this fight. Now let's turn it over to the betting odds real quick, where we're currently looking at the FightOds.io uh, odds screen, and I'm seeing a plus one forty one on bet online one of the sharper sports books out there for the roman de Lidze side i'm seeing a minus 161 on a nasardine and mob offside so it looks like the best available price in the market is around those numbers as well uh seems like the market's pretty tight not a lot of variety here either um most books between plus 135 you know uh fan do i'd say is a little bit of an outlier with a plus 124 uh but they've got the minus 160 so they're just booking in much higher vig on their line. But in any case, um, you know, I look at this fight and I say to myself, you know, could make a case for either guy if the line was a little bit closer. But I think that Imabov has a little bit more to prove uh, to me for this, uh, this chalk price tag personally. Now let's turn it over to the trends on this fight and we'll close out the main event talk with the trends on this one. And when I'm looking at it, Nasruddin Imavov has actually been an underdog in several of his UFC fights. But as a favorite, he has produced 2-1 and one in the organization for a 9.7% ROI. So he's turned you a profit if you've been betting on him as a favorite. The examples of him cashing as a favorite in the UFC, minus 115 against Edmund Shabazian, went out there and got the TKO2, and then went out there against Joaquin Buckley and got the uh, decision win as a minus 238 favorite in France, in Paris, if you guys remember that one as well. So when I'm looking at the uh, the you know betting trends on the Amavov side, it is curious to me that he's went from being an underdog against Jordan Williams, Ian Heinish, to now uh, you know he's being favored against Roman Delize. Do find that to be a bit interesting, um, certainly. And when you look at the Roman Delize side, let's talk about how he's performed as a betting underdog, three and one as a betting underdog so far in his UFC career. Pretty impressive stuff from the Delidze side. He has a 124.5% ROI as a dog so far in the UFC. You could say that he's due for some regression, potentially. Um, you know, he's been doing such a great job. But if you look, you could argue, guys, that he should have a much higher ROI, that he should be, in fact, 4-0 and as an underdog. If you thought that he won that Vittori fight, uh, believe the closing line odds according to betmma.tips were plus 460. I do remember it being like plus 230, plus 250, plus 300. And I thought the line was insane. And uh, when it came down to it, I thought that the way that the fight played out, that line was insane. So he was plus 240 against Kyle Dawkins, one via KO1. He was plus 163 against Phil Hawes, one via KO1. He was plus 195 against Shaker Manson. He won via KO2. I mean, this guy's been producing. Not only has he been a dog, but he's been a dog that's going out there and winning by finish uh, violently early. So that's something that's hard to ignore for me as well from a trend standpoint. 
Uh, the guy who's been a little bit more productive is actually the betting underdog here, Roman Delidze. So I would be thinking this is probably a dog or pass situation, but I will do a little bit more tape, a little more research, and a little more due diligence. Come back to you guys for bets and banter. Talk it out with our guy, Rich, on Thursday's program. That being said, guys, let's dig on in to this co-main event of the evening where we've got Hanato Moicano, money Moicano, Moicano wants money. Uh, and he's taking on Drew Dober, the Crimson Chin. This is a fascinating matchup of two guys that are both, you know, um, what's a polite way to say it, right? Uh, fun action fighters in the lightweight division that maybe aren't due for contention, you know, at this stage of their career. You look at the Drew Dober side, and he has uh, been pretty productive lately uh, in his bouts. You know, he lost to Mavrovola, got the chin cracked in that one. Um, but he had been on a four and one run in his last five fights. Uh, but I think you start peeling back the layers of those um, particular matchups and you can poke some holes there. Ricky Glenn, not a very durable fighter at this point in his career, been struggling particularly with the durability. Um, you look at the Matt Frivola fight. And uh, Drew got caught early on in that fight, but honestly, I thought Matt had his number. You know, I thought Matt was the better wrestler. I thought he was a better grappler. He knocked him the hell out on the feet. Um, so I think he's probably the better striker too. Um, I think Matt just had his number that night. I think he was always going to win that fight. Um, you know, most, you know, eight times out of 10, seven times out of 10, something like that. Uh, but in any case, you look at the Bobby Green fight, you know, um, Bobby is a, uh, he's an older Older guy in the division, right? He just got brutally knocked out by Jalen Turner as well. He's a tough guy, um, but that chin is starting to go. He's a little bit older. He's had a million fights. Uh, so I think that that's something to um, consider. The Rafael Alves fight. I mean, Alves went out there and put on a war, put on an action fight. Again, another fun action fighter, but a guy that didn't really have the skills to pay the bills, did not stick around with the UFC. I think he had, you know, double digit losses potentially um, as a professional. So he's a you know, solid fighter, but also a guy that, that could definitely find a way to lose fights, doesn't necessarily have the cardio to push for the full 15 minutes there. So you look at the Terrence McKinney fight, and I mean, Terrence McKinney, guys, almost put Drew Dober on a highlight reel. Uh, and that's something else that we got to remember. And obviously the Crimson Shin was able to rally there, but, you know, Matt Favola probably slid Terrence five on that. Like, hey, man, I know you caught me that one time, but you did that number on Drew Dober and, uh, and softened that one up for me. So when you look at the prior fights, right, Brad Riddell, they had a very close back and forth war. Um, but I think Brad Riddell was able to separate himself with a couple of takedowns, if my memory serves. Islam Mahashev was able to take him down, dominate from the top position. Benil Dariush back in the day was able to take him down and submit him as well. Um, so we've definitely seen Drew Dober struggle at times on the ground. Um, but what's interesting about this fight is it's a very good style clash. Because Drew Dober has struggled immensely on the ground throughout the course of his career. Nine and four career to the submission, 11 and two career to the KO uh, prop. And when I'm looking back, the KO must have been very early in his career, like way back in the day, because uh, I'm not seeing it on his. Uh, on his professional record. So it's probably like his first one or two fights. And then when you look at the uh, the more recent one against Frivola, he got caught on the chin. You know, it, it was a pretty stiff shot. But Hanato Moicano, uh, he's not really a power hitter, right? Like zero career wins by knockout. So he's not really a guy who's going to go out there and uh, 
threat in the chin of a guy like Drew Dober. You know, when Hanato Moicano has been really effective on the feet in the UFC, I think of instances like him going out there and chopping the legs off of his opponents. We saw that against Calvin Cater back when he was in the featherweight division. Now he's at 155 pounds where he's had mixed results. He has not been knocked out since 2020 when he fought uh, Rafael Faziv, but we have seen, you know, he's been hurt, rocked, wobbled in a couple of these other fights. He has won three fights in a row uh, via rear naked choke in terms of the fights that he has won. However, he is uh, one and three in his, or excuse me, he's three and one in his last four fights uh, with a loss to Rafael Dos Anjos in the mix. And I did uh, take RDA pretty big against Moicano. Moicano was flown in on short notice for that one. Um, you know, I think they had him moving around weight classes. Like guy who used to fight at 45, that one I think was at 170. Let me just confirm that. So I don't want to speak out of turn. No, it was 160 pound catch weight. Excuse me. So yeah, 160 pound catch weight. So the guy still had to cut weight and he got bodied in that fight. You know, he got beat up really badly there. So it shows some heart for him to stick around for the full five rounds. But to be frank, at the time, I thought that RDA was kind of being merciful. You know, like I, I thought that RDA kind of let the foot off the gas at a certain point because the referee didn't intervene. But I mean, it was an absolute savage beatdown. Shout out to Matt Campbell says, never seen anyone do live shows this early. Love it. Rise and grind, baby. Hey, we do not go to sleep when we're tired on this show. We go to sleep when the job is done, my friend. So I'm excited to continue talking about these fights. And I appreciate the kind words and the support. And when you look at this, couple of interesting dynamics to the fight. You know, the wins for Hanato Maikano, that's where I think you start to run into some trouble. Uh, Brad Riddell, you know, very small fighter for the division, guy who's been on a rough run. He's been on hard times lately. So, you know, no harm, no foul, but I don't really give it that much credence. When you look at the Alexander Hernandez fight, he's a very hot and cold fighter. Um, you know, he's got some half-decent skills, but you look at Alexander Hernandez, he's 14-7 and seven overall as a professional. Granted, his only ever submission loss was against Sonata Moicano. I do think that's pretty impressive, but he does have three losses via KO or TKO, three losses via decision. So it's not like Alexander Hernandez is a, an unbeatable fighter either. And then the Jai Herbert fight went out there and submitted a guy who's primarily, um, you know, Going to go out there, look to strike nine wins by KO, one and one career to the sub. So he trains at a BJJ gym, but we all know Jai Herbert going to go look for the knockout more often than not. Going to go swing and bang on the feet. Moicano getting dusted by Fazeev kind of just makes sense. You know, um, Fazeev's a big hitter. Um, Moicano, you know, had the, the grappling edge there, but Fazeev's not easy to out grapple either. So it just seemed like that was a tough fight on paper for him. Demir Hadzovic, that's not a win that ages great either. I don't really believe in Demir as a high-level fighter. Chan Sung Jung, fair loss. Um, but Jose Aldo, another fair loss. It's just the fact that he's losing so many fights by KO and TKO. He's been hurt, rocked, wobbled a million times in the fights. So he finds ways to win. He's a pretty decent fighter. But I do think that some people pointing out, uh, like my guy Dixon in the chat, Moicano about to go full-time YouTube after this L. Delidze and Drick is destined to be many more skilled fighters than themselves. I feel that, Danny. So when I'm looking at it, I say to myself, man, you've got a guy in Hanato Moicano who could definitely go out there and submit Drew Dober. But if he's not going to go out there and submit Drew Dober, 
then I think Drew is probably going to win the fight because when you look at uh, Drew, you know, what he does well is he hits people really hard, you know? And so like, if your problem is that you don't have a great chin, you don't want to fight a guy like Drew Dober because if you look guys, one fight that I got wrong and I, I always encourage you to try and um, to learn, you know, like if you get something wrong, if you make a mistake, go out there and try and learn from it. And um, when I look at my past cap of Drew Dober, I've underrated how dangerous a knockout threat that this guy is because I've always said like, man, this, oh, but I think this is going to be that dynamic. I think this is how it's going to go. If you look, I saw, um, you know, Drew Dober getting absolutely pieced up by Bobby Green. <laughs> Excuse me. Hopefully that's enough sneezes for one show. But uh, I saw him getting absolutely pieced up by Bobby Green, and I thought Bobby Green was going to win that fight. But I'll tell you something, guys. Do you remember what happened in that fight? Bobby Green was winning, and he was winning, and he was winning, and then he got killed. He just got absolutely hit with a massive blow and just went down like he had gotten shot by a sniper. And so when I think about that, I say to myself, man, this guy, Drew Dober, probably been making some gradual wrestling and grappling improvements over the course of his career. You know, losing to Islam Mahashev will give you a pass there. Losing to Brad Riddell, I mean, it was a super close fight on the feet, and Brad Riddell is out there trying to take him down because of it. And Moicano, he doesn't really have a body type that's great for going out there and pursuing takedowns, frankly. You know, like, can he go out there and get them? Yeah, I'm sure he could get some, but, um, you know, I don't think he's super uh, effective with his takedown game. You know, a lot of what he does is he likes to uh, go for overhooks. Um, you know, he likes to try and grab the body lock and stuff. He's a big, tall, long guy. You know, it just doesn't really facilitate those leg attacks, especially on a guy who's a fire hydrant like Drew Dober. So if you look at the uh, tail of the tape for this fight, both guys surprisingly old, right? Like, let's say the median age of this fight is like 35, right? Uh, just over 35 for Drew Dober and just under 35 for Hinato Moicano. And when I'm looking at it on paper, I say to myself, man, Moicano could have a very easy path to this win by just taking the back, going for the sub. But Drew Dober is a guy that relentlessly positive, you know, coming off a win, got some of that momentum back with a big win by knockout. And I think that, uh, you know, Drew is a guy that the UFC relies on to go out there and put on these fun fights. They're giving him a, uh, you know, they're giving him a spot where Drew is going out there and he can go, um, you know, blow for blow with most guys in this lightweight division, especially guys like Moicano who are primarily going to go for the low kicks. Man, it's a fascinating one. It's a fascinating one. Let's look at the betting odds. Let's look at the trends and let's see if that can elucidate some more clear um, spots for us on this fight because I do find this one a little bit tricky. It's a clear striker versus grappler type dynamic. Uh, although I will say... I think that Dixon might be onto something here. He says Moicano's been talking crap about the UFC on his channel. I noticed that as well. Uh, talking crap about UFC 300 as well. Um, UFC setting up Moicano for failure in this spot. That's possible. Uh, Dober was given a 42-year-old Ricky Glenn to build him up to fail. Um, pop, very possible. Um, UFC loves Dober. He's a cash cow whenever he fights. Fair play. Uh, Big Liam, my man, North Ender. Cheers. Welcome back. Um, doesn't get more favorable for Moicano, in my opinion. 
Interesting. Um, I, I wouldn't be so sure. I wouldn't be so sure here. Like I get, I get the case for Moicano, but he's not that young. He's not that durable. He's not that marketable. And he is kind of talking shit about the UFC. And um, he does look like he's exploring some other avenues. You know, I don't think Drew Dober is going to be doing fucking YouTube tomorrow. Like, I don't think he's going to be doing announcing or some shit like Drew Dober. I don't know that he knows anything else, but get up, wrap gloves and fight. That's what he does. So I do think that um, there's a there's a case to be made for Drew Dober here. But I respect my man, Mason, and uh, he's good with them numbers. So uh, the stats definitely back it. But um, yeah, this that's an interesting point as well, Mark. I noticed that too. I noticed Moicano said he hates the Apex. I wanted to bet him, but I don't like that for him. Coming off the one-year layoff and the ACL injury, there's a lot of unknowns here. Absolutely. I think that is um, a great point. So if we look at Hinata Moicano as a favorite, here's where the numbers don't line up. So I know the numbers for the FIDA analytics do line up here for Moicano, uh, according to my boy Mason, who is a very sharp guy. But I do want to just say, here's where the numbers maybe don't add up. Five and three as a UFC favorite at an average odds of minus 190. It's going to book you a minus 6.12% ROI. You've been losing money if you've been betting on Moicano as a favorite in his UFC run. Uh, granted, let's look at his more recent UFC sample size. Minus 125 against Brad Riddell gets to sub in round one. Minus 149 against Alexander Hernandez gets to sub in round two. Minus 223 against Shai Herbert gets to sub in round two. Minus 417 against Demir Hadzovic gets the sub in round one. But if you look at the fights prior to that, he was favored to beat Chan Sung Jung, the Korean zombie. He got knocked out in the first round. He was favored to beat Jose Aldo. He got knocked out in the second round. He was favored to beat Brian Ortega. He got submitted in the third round. And granted, he was whooping Brian Ortega's ass. People will forget that. But when you look back, um, Anato Moicano, he's a guy that has definitely let, um, you know, he's snatched defeat from the jaws of victory before, right? Like he's not a guy that goes out there and puts on a perfect game plan. Um, shout out to Chuckles Play says, I see Moicano reaching out to grapple and getting starched, similar to the Fazeev KO. Um, Dixon says, I love Hinata, but I'm scared for him. Um, Mason says, not going to lie, did not know about the ACL. Dixon says, love when, uh, Liam, when this fight ends exactly like Bobby Green versus Grant Dawson, please think of me. Shout out to you then. I hope you're ending the, uh, ends by, ends in 60 seconds, if that's the case. Honestly, the ends in 60 seconds could play for both guys here, you know? I don't think Drew Dober is going to tap in 60 seconds, but could he go to sleep? I mean... Uh, stranger things have happened. You can't tough guy a choke. Um, yeah, we'll have to see. I'll I'll watch the tape on Hanato Moicano's uh, takedown defense in more depth, um, and, and then I will get back to you guys on that. I will get back to you guys on that. But let's look at the trend on Drew Dober here as well. So Drew Dober, as an underdog, guys, he's only been an underdog nine times in his UFC run. He's had uh, you know, over 20 fights with the promotion. So a lot of times he's been going out there favored to get the job done, but three and six, just three and six as a UFC underdog. However, Drew Dober has produced a 20.8% ROI. So is he winning every time that he is a underdog? No, he is certainly not. He is losing well more often than he's winning. 
But because he has come through as a big underdog before, then he has paid off his underdog backers over time. How has he done it? Jamie Varner, plus 335, gets the sub round one back in December of 2014. So long time ago there. Got the win over Scott Holzman back in 2016 via unanimous decision as a plus 167 underdog. And his other underdog win in the UFC was against Nasrat Hakparas. I thought that that was such a great spot. Uh, January of 2020 against Nasrat Hakparas gets the KO1 plus 285. Wow. Unbelievable. Um, and when you look since then, he's been favored, guys, in every fight except the Islam fight. So the Islam fight is the lone exception. He was favored to beat Alexander Hernandez and did. He was favored to beat Brad Riddell and lost a close, controversial split decision. He was favored to beat Terrence McKinney, KO1. Favored to beat Rafael Alves, KO3. Favored to beat Bobby Green, KO2. Favored to beat Matt Frivola, lost via KO1. And favored to beat Ricky Glenn, won via KO1. This guy has been favored a lot of his recent fights. Now he's back to being the dog. Um, interesting stuff. Very fascinating fight. I will tape study the takedowns of Anata Moicano, because I think that is the uh, defining question of this matchup. If you guys go to my uh, profile on X, on Twitter, whatever the hell you want to call it, um, then you will see, I put up the relevant questions for the main event. I think there's one super relevant question for this co-main event, which is, is Anato Moicano going to dictate this fight with takedowns or low kicks? Because if he's not, I think he's going to get touched on the chin, and I don't like that prospect for him. Shout out to Bailey. Says, is this live? This is live. Cheers to you, Bailey. Welcome aboard. We are still rocking and rolling on this main card and excited to kick it to the next fight where we will talk about a fascinating matchup, um, and it's a rebooked matchup. So I will try not to belabor the point on this one. Got Randy Brown taking on Muslim Salikov, and this is a fight that I do not have the strongest read on. If you guys are familiar with my long-term betting process, if you've been watching the show for a while, then you may know that I do not like betting on rebooked fights. It's something I try to avoid uh, as a rule. Reason being, the bookmakers already seen where the sharp action's coming in. They've already had an opportunity uh, you know, to shape the line. And I do think that it becomes harder psychologically um, you know, to know what's real and what's fake, what's signal and what's noise in that kind of market. So I normally keep my hands clean of these kind of matchups, but let's talk about it. We've got clearly a huge anthropomorphic advantage on the Randy Brown side. That hasn't been the case in some of these other matchups, but definitely the case here where Randy's going to be 33 years of age compared to 39 years of age for Muslim Salikov. And he's also going to be the much bigger fighter here in every capacity. He's going to be the taller fighter. He's going to be the longer fighter. So he's really checking every box when it comes to his um, intangibles and his physical characteristics. Now, as for the Muslim Salikov side, he is a guy that has quietly produced for his uh, money line backers in the UFC. I tweeted that out earlier, and I, I think, uh, or I retweeted it. It's something I had tweeted long ago. And when you look, Muslim Salikov's a guy that is uh, 1-0 as a UFC underdog, right? Very rarely been a dog in his fight. That being said, you know, he's had a very weird and at times quite soft strength of competition in the organization. So let's poke holes in Muslim Salikov's resume, despite him having the greatest nickname, the King of Kung Fu. 
He fought Alex Garcia, lost via submission in round two. Um, you know, most people are probably asking right now, who is Alex Garcia? He beat Ricky Rainey via KO. He beat Nordin Taleb via KO. That was a solid win. And that was his only time being an underdog in the UFC. He got the win there uh, via KO one as a dog. But then you see that in his very next fight, he goes out there, wins a uh, decision against Loriano Staropoli, not a very impressive fighter, wins a split decision against Easy Dos Santos. That's his best win by far. I thought that that was, you know, very close, very close fight to, to say the least. Um, I thought it could have went either way. But in any case, I don't think it was a robbery. You look at the Trinaldo fight, I mean, an ancient fighter, you know, another guy who's like older than Muslim Salikov. So fighting some age contemporaries, some older guys, uh, then he fights the leech. And what happens? I, I max bet the leech. I had 10 units on the leech plus 150 there. I was like, you're going to give me the guy who's bigger, younger, um, longer, hits harder, meaner, will poke you in the eyes, will do anything to win. Like, yeah, give me that guy a plus 150 for a big amount every time. Um, so I, I did like that spot for sure. And then when I looked at the, um, you know, the fight with Fialho, I mean, man, Fialho is just not very good, right? He, he's a guy who I think has been cut from the organization, didn't really have the chin to hack it at this level. And the Dolby fight, I could definitely forgive losing that fight for Muslim. I think that that's a fight where, you know, Muslim can, um, can hold his head high knowing, hey, Dolby's a tough guy to beat, right? He just went out there and finished Bonfim. Um, Dolby hasn't been an easy mark for almost anybody in the UFC, you know, went out there and upset the apple cart when Daniel Rodriguez was like a minus 300 favorite against him as well. So he's the king of, uh, springing those upsets. No shame there. But when you look at this fight, right, he's now back to being an underdog. That's unfamiliar territory for him, but it comes with his age. It comes with the fact that the last fight was canceled, I'm sure. And you look at, uh, Randy Brown. You could also poke some holes in his resume. I, I said Francisco Trinaldo's ancient. Well, he's way older than Randy than he was compared to Muslim Salikov, but that's Randy's second most recent win in the UFC, right? Um, his most recent win is over Wellington Terman, a perpetually chinny individual that Randy was not able to finish, um, which I think is mildly concerning. You look at the Jack Della fight and the submission, um, you know, Basically, he had gotten badly hurt. He was compromised. He was rocked. So I think that that's something to bear in mind here um, is that, you know, Randy, he can be hurt. He can be rocked. He can be wobbled. And that's something you do have to keep in mind when somebody's going to be, you know, minus 250 favorite or minus 300 favorite, right? Is it um, Muslim Salikov just sucks all of a sudden? I mean, listen, Muslim's never been the, the best fighter in the world, but what he's pretty good at is picking his shots and then finding big one-shot kills that hurt people or steal rounds. And um, that's kind of what Randy's been susceptible to throughout his career. He's done a good job of uh, managing distance at times. At other times, he's really struggled. You know, guys that have mixed in the low kick have really had a, a great time getting to Randy. But you look at some of these other fights, you know, um, split decision win over Chaos Williams. It's a, a fine win. He was a slight underdog in that fight. He was a big favorite against Jared Gooden, and, um, you know, he won a close decision there. It did not look super impressive. And when you look at the uh, Alex Cowboy Oliveira fight, another guy who's no longer with the promotion, he lost to Vicente Luque via knockout. Again, it was a brutal, brutal starching. The Nico Price, Price fight, that was the one that made his chin look really um, suspect, in my opinion. 
And then um, even the fight against uh, Michael Graves way back in the day has been submitted before. So he's not impervious on the ground. I think that Muslim Salikov is probably uh, aging out of his UFC run. I think he could definitely uh, get finished in this fight. You know, last time out, what I had noted was that these are two guys that just strike me as like a fight not to go the distance type of guys um, because of how they fight. But when you look, I, I feel worse about that prop now than in the first iteration of the fight. Um, Randy does have the ability to win this fight, in my view, by submission. I think Muslim Salikov, a um, little bit suspect career to the submission. Um, you look, he was submitted via rear naked choke back in 2012 by Chris Hokum. He was also submitted via rear naked choke by Alex Garcia back in 2017. And at his current age and his level of physical fitness, the way he tires out at the end of fights, I could definitely see, um, you know, Randy just outlasting him and submitting him. Randy has huge limb length advantage, and that creates a lot of submission dynamics as well. We've seen Randy get that one-arm rear naked choke, for example. So I think that Randy uh, should get the job done here, but it's just super hard for me to trust a guy like that at a huge significant chalk price. Uh, granted you look at Randy Brown as a favorite, he's seven and two for a 19.1% ROI. So he's producing in that role as a favorite. But like I said, Muslim Salikov want to know as an underdog for a 115% ROI in his own right. So I think that that's something fair to note, but that's not a fight that I care too much about to discuss. So we can move along to the next fight on the card, which is Vivian Araujo taking on Natalia Silva. This is a fun fight, guys. Between two Brazilian women, we got Brazil on Brazil crime. However, we have a 10-year age gap here, and that will be favoring Natalia Silva. And this does actually fit a system play that I talk about, guys. And, um, you know, unfortunately, it's not an underdog odds, so it's not a system bet. But it's just something I always talk about from a prediction standpoint, which is a younger fighter with more professional experience. And that's what you have with Natalia Silva. Right. She's had over 20 professional fights compared to just 17 for her 37 year old counterpart here. Um, you know, there's going to be a reach advantage on the Vivian Araujo side, but I think that's going to be offset by the speed advantage that we will see from Natalia Silva. Um, so I think that it's a, a fascinating fight. Um, for me, Natalia Silva was something of a revelation when she came to the UFC. You know, I thought she was going to give Jasmine Jasuda Vicious problems, but I wasn't sure that she was going to make the weight. I wasn't sure that she had been training super serious. We hadn't seen much from Natalia Silva since the regional scene. And then she had a gap in her career. If you look 2019 to 2022, she had not had a professional fight, but now she's fought Andrea Lee seasoned girl, been around the MMA space for a long time. Victoria Leonardo seasoned girl, been around the space for a long time. Teresa Bleda, Strong, physical, young, contemporary, and she knocked her out. That was crazy. The UFC wanted to promote the shit out of that, I'll tell you. And then the uh, Jasmine Jasuda Vicious fight. I mean, we, what have we seen from Jasmine ever since? She's been relentless. She's been aggressive. She's been very good at taking people down and, um, you know, grabbing a hold of, uh, you know, these moments. Moyes just distracted me completely with the never forget Blade had choked out Silver round one. I'll have to look into that. I do not remember that at all, um, Moyes. So 
I'll, I'll definitely rewatch that tape. I haven't watched any tape on this fight. I will just let you guys know. Uh, I have to watch tape on this. Uh, Blada definitely is a gas bag as well. I agree with you there. Um, but she's just very muscular. She's very young. Maybe that'll come around. But yeah, at this point in her career, that is fair to say. But this is a girl with a lot of losses from early on in her run. Um, I think her last loss was in 2017 to Marina Rodriguez, you know, a UFC level fighter who's going to be on UFC 300. So nothing wrong with that. And currently we see that um, Natalia Silva is riding a 10 fight win streak into this event. She does have 12 wins inside the distance, uh, five wins via knockout, as well as seven wins via submission. And I think that she has a good chance to win this fight, but I think what she needs to do against a very seasoned fighter like this is sprawl, brawl, try and keep it upright and land the bigger shots. Because I think if she does that, she can outlast her opponent. She can have more cardio to push down the stretch. And I think she can get the win here uh, in what should be a very close and competitive fight. But if there's takedowns for Viviana or Ushao, it could definitely um, you know, change the complexion of the fight in my view. But I don't. I just see her struggling to get those against somebody with the uh, hips and the balance of Natalia Silva. Alrighty, folks. Next up, or actually, you know what? We should just talk about the trends there, out of respect for the ladies. So, in terms of Viviana Araujo, she's three and three as a UFC underdog for a very respectable thirty-one point eight percent ROI. But Natalia Silva, on the other hand, is actually one, or, or excuse me, three and zero as a favorite for a thirty-three point seven percent ROI. So very comparable ROI, um, you know, and the win rate is a little bit better for Natalia Silva. But both these girls, both these women, I should say, are um, you know both quite competitive, and both outperforming their expected odds. So should be a fascinating fight in the women's division. And hope to see these two Brazilian ladies putting on a show. Next up, folks, we've got Aliashkab Kizriev taking on Mahmoud Muradov. And this is a fascinating fight as well because, um, you know, this does, again, almost fit the system criteria. And that would be Mahmoud Muradov is the same age or, uh, you know, just slightly older. Uh, you'd prefer a few was younger, but same age also typically works. And so he's the same age and he is, uh, you know, these are both 33 year old fighters. So I don't see a massive edge on paper, except that uh, Kizriev is very small. You know, he does not seem big for this division, five foot nine inches. Uh, he seemed visibly undersized in his last fight against uh, Tululian. And he's another guy who's been dealing with these bouts of inactivity. We haven't seen constant, um, you know, performances from Kizriev. Let's go back and look at the record. As a matter of fact, he has more canceled bouts in the UFC than um, actual bouts. He withdrew from a scheduled bout with Jacob Malkoon in September. He uh, had Abus Magomedov withdrew from a scheduled bout in March of 2022. And he withdrew from a fight with Alessio DiCirico. You know he was really sick if he pulled out of that fight. I'm kidding. Uh, Kyle Dawkins, that event was canceled due to the coronavirus. And uh, Terman withdrew from a schedule bout with him. So he's been the, the king of bad luck. Can't get in the cage. But he's 1-0 in the UFC. He is 9-0 to the ITD prop. Um, five wins by knockout. Four wins by submission. And he's taking on a Mahmoud Muradov, who really looked to be fraudulent to me at times in his UFC run. 
including as recently as the Brian Barberena fight. You know, I tweeted after that fight that he kind of just gave me some fraudulent vibes, you know. Um, was it impressive that he went out there and, and stuck it out in a hard fight? Um, you know, yeah, he got the win there. But his cardio still didn't look great. It looked like his wrestling is still something like a work in progress. It, it didn't seem like it was up to snuff. But he is a big, physical, awkward guy. And we have seen guys that are talented, like Kyle Barajo, struggle at times uh, to control him easily, to put him in uncomfortable grappling situations for extended periods of time comfortably, um, and to finish the fight. So I think his submission defense has been up to snuff um, in his recent matchups. But obviously the Gerald Mearshart fight, you know, it it shows on paper as a submission loss. I think really the problem there was that he didn't have the pace to keep up with Gerald and he was slowing down. Uh, shout out to Moise. He says uh, Murd off season in the chat. Um, shout out to Aw Jays says new to the channel. Appreciate you, brother. Um, welcome aboard. I hope that you enjoy the show. So when I'm looking at the, uh, you know, the fight on paper, I say to myself, man, Mahmoud Murdoff, you know, uh, I'll just give you guys a little inside baseball here. Um, I put together a social media A-side report every week um, as one of the many things that I do to try and give myself a competitive advantage, give other people um, that, you know, care about my work a competitive advantage. And when I looked into this card, you know, one thing that stands out on paper, Mahmoud Murdoff has the biggest social media account on this card, and it's not particularly close, okay? Um, so when you look at that, that does say to me, man, do I want to, you know, get involved in chalk odds fading, um, you know, one of the biggest stars on the card? That's not something I love to do. Uh, it's not to say it's not profitable at times. You know, you could definitely find examples and advantages um, fading the market and, and things like that. But I look at this fight and I say to myself, man, you know, Macmillan Buradoff, he's had a lot of fights. Um, you know, he's been working on his game. He's been trying to improve 17 and one career to the knockout. That's a lot of knockouts to have on your record and uh, very few in his recent run, but he has shown flashes of power, knocked out Trevor Smith in the UFC, knocked out Andrew Sanchez in the UFC. And, um, you know, I thought that Brian Barbarino was going to get submitted in that fight, but he's tough as an old leather boot. He found a way to keep winning. Uh, you look at what Bailey has to say in the chat. All of his losses are solid. Kyle Barajo, Gerald Mearshart, uh, David Ramirez back in the day, uh, Maciej Rosanowski. So, yeah, he hasn't lost um, very much since 2016. So I think that's fair to say. Um, I do think Kizriev is also very good um, at what he does. You know, I think Kizriev like I said, a little bit undersized, but 14 and 0 is hard to argue with, right? He's doing everything right. And he's going out there and getting wins like he's asked of. Dennis Delulian, not a very good fighter, didn't have much to offer him and got absolutely, you know, served on the ground there. Um, but he had been doing a great job prior to that as well. He had been putting together a pretty solid resume and, you know, looking like he's a guy who's willing to go out there, uh, grind to get the win. But a lot of these wins are coming via early submission. And uh, you do have to question, based on that Tululian fight, if this guy has the cardio to keep pushing for 15 minutes because we saw Muradov was not um, taken out of the fight by Kyle Barajo. And Kyle is not the, the best finisher, but he can make you pay if he gets to those dominant positions. And Kyle was more worried about controlling the positions there. And if Kizriev's doing that here too, um, that could be a little bit of danger for him. I, I do think that Muradov could storm back on him in rounds two and three here which is not something I'd normally say. But um, I also do worry, though, that Muradov could just completely gas out in this fight from getting out-wrestled himself. 
you know, and it could turn into a gross slop fest and go to decision and Kizriev gets the win, uh, you know, via out wrestling him for two rounds. So yeah, for me, it's just a, a weird fight on paper um, as well. I got to do a little bit more research on this one, but let's go through and see if the trends can be illuminating for us on this fight. Obviously the size, like I mentioned, anthropomorphic advantage is going to go towards the uh, Macklin Murdoff side here, the side of the underdog. He is going to have more professional experience. He's going to be just six months older here, both men 33 years of age at the time of the fight. And you look, uh, he's going to have a one and a half inch reach advantage and a three inch height advantage as, or excuse me, even more significant, a five inch height advantage as well on paper. So Macklin Murdoff, the much bigger fighter, but unfortunately, when you are that much bigger, it is going to present your hips to your opponent. So Kizriev should have some easier opportunities to set up his takedowns in the first round. But now let's talk about the betting trends. Macklin Murdoff, guys, has been favored in all but one UFC fight. When he was an underdog, he did go on to lose a unanimous decision to Kyle Barajo, but his only other loss in the UFC came as a minus 588 favorite against Gerald GM3 Mearshart. So if you've bet on Murdoff as a favorite, he's turned you a 16.2% profit. But because of that loss as an underdog and because he hasn't been a crazy uh, ROI favorite, he has produced a negative overall return for his backers in the UFC. So if you've been betting money on this guy, you have not been winning. As for his opponent here, Kizriev was a massive, massive favorite in his uh, fight against Dennis Tullulian, so much so that he had a 11% ROI on the money line there at a minus 900 favorite. So nothing really to be had there, nothing really to be said there. Um, I have to study Kizriev a little bit more to know if he's worth the chalk. But for me, that's a fight on paper where, you know, the early indicators would say it seems like a dogger pass situation. Um, but he's an undefeated fighter for a reason. So don't want to not give him any short shrift. But Kizrev didn't look like a world beater to me against um, against Tululian, so I hope to see a better product from him here. All right, guys. Next up, we will round out this main card with Gilbert Urbina taking on Charles Chuck Buffalo Radke. I remember thinking Charles looked extremely sloppy in that win over Blood Diamond Mike Mathia Matheta. Um, when I'm looking at it, I say to myself, man, this guy is um, a decent finisher from the regional scene, but I don't know that his skills are going to translate at the highest level. It did seem like his cardio was falling off a cliff in that fight. It did seem like he was cheating a lot, um, if my memory serves, uh, and the referee kept getting involved. So when I look at that, I say to myself, man, uh, Ratke definitely – um, a work in progress uh, and looks kind of like a regional fighter. But when you look at the Gilbert Urbina side, he's minus 200 as a favorite, which is a little bit surprising as well. Um, you know, fighting out of the BMF ranch, he's going to have a three inch reach advantage here, as well as a significant height advantage, according to topology. Uh, he's a much younger fighter as well. 27 compared to 33 years of age for Chuck Buffalo here. And people are expecting Urbina to get it done via these topology votes. But for me, Urbina is kind of a hit and miss guy, and he's definitely a guy that can be rocked uh, with punches on the feet. So, um, yeah, laying a big chalk price with a guy like Urbina, this does feel like a card where not many of the favorites are very chalk are very trustworthy, um, at least as I'm seeing it. 
and a couple of the sharp people I've talked to have, have kind of felt the same way. Um, but it, it's a lower level apex card and, you know, you're getting minus 150, minus 170 on some of these fighters that just have clear deficiencies or clear problems. So that's always tough for me, you know, like um, for Gilbert Urbina wins over Orion Kosi and Angelo Trevino. Don't really tell me that you're ready for prime time. But the fact that he went to decision with Sean Brady does tell me he's a tough guy. He can go out there and compete. As for Chuck Buffalo, the wins over Raheem Forrest uh, might even be more impressive than the win over uh, Mike Matheta. I, I think that's probably uh, the case. But Chuck Buffalo is just a guy that um, you know really didn't impress me in that fight. So I don't feel compelled to bet on this fight. But again, the pricing does feel weird and kind of like dogger pass situation. Let me go look at my Urbina bets. I bet I took Brian battle against Gilbert Urbina back in the day. Um, and I had the under in that uh, Chuck Buffalo and Mike Matheta fight. Maybe that's why I hated that fight so much. Cause he, he did not fight like he was a man looking for the under there. <laughs> Let's see if we've got any trends here. Um, Chuck Buffalo has been an underdog three times and they were all pre UFC. It looks like so CFFC, he was running up that paper as an underdog. Can he keep it going in the UFC? Who knows? As for Gilbert Urbina, he was um, a pick and price with Orion Kosi, but he has been an underdog in every other fight. So now you're paying that shock odds for him. Fair play. Not for me. I'll tell you that, <laughs> but I'll do a little more digging, a little more research, a little more due diligence, and let you guys know what I have to offer uh, when I do the tape study there, but not much to dig into from a trend perspective. So let's dig into these prelims instead, where we've got a rematch of Molly Meatball McCann taking on Deanna Belbitza. And you may have a case of two women moving in opposite directions here. You've got, on the one hand, Molly McCann, two straight losses in the uh, UFC. She got beat by Aaron Blanchfield via Kimura. She got submitted via armbar against Julia Stoliarenko. So she's looking to bounce back here. Um, you know, she was on a three fight winning streak prior to that in the company. And now she's really uh, fallen off in terms of her momentum. So they're trying to get her a win by putting her back in there with a girl she's already beat. But Diana Belbita is going to be 27 years of age compared to 33 years of age for Molly McCann. She's a much younger fighter as well in this spot. She's going to be the bigger fighter. The anthropomorphic advantages are there. She's going to be taller by three inches. She's going to have a six-inch reach advantage. So I think that when you're looking at a plus 240 underdog in a women's fight where the momentum and the youth and everything else is on the Belbita side, I mean, it, it's an obvious dogger pass situation for me, money line. Um, I think that McCann could go out there with the intent that, hey, I'm going to go make a statement on this girl. I'm going to take her down. I'm going to beat her up. Hey, maybe she can go out there and do that. But Molly McCann flying all the way to Vegas, no Patty the Batty, um, you know, just Molly being Molly and kind of being half in, half out, it seems like her last couple fights. This doesn't feel like it's right for me. And, you know, she goes out there and gets a win over somebody on the regional scene. That shows up on Tapology, right? You go look. Oh, win via armbar. Nice. She's getting back out there. She's on the grappling circuit. You go click on that girl's topology that she submitted. Every topology entry is just that girl getting submitted via different methods. So, um, yeah, I, I think that Diana Belbita is not a very good fighter, but at plus 240 or whatever, it's like, you know, how wrong could you be? 
So I won't overthink this one too much, but let's talk about the betting trends at least because that is important. I do think that she's been crapping the bed as a dog, uh, Molly McCann. So last time out, she was a minus 200 favorite. <clears throat> Crapped the bed, got submitted in the first round, but she was plus 350 against Aaron Blanchfield. Everybody knew what time it was that night. She was minus 400 against Goldie, got the win via KO1, minus 141 against Luana Carolina, who we will discuss. And um, also uh, one as an underdog, plus 105 against GE on Kim. So as a favorite, Molly McCann has been underwater, guys, not producing five and four as a um, as a favorite for a minus 22.7% ROI, so not great. Uh, and as for the Diana Belbitsa side, she has not been very productive in the UFC either. You look, she has been a negative proposition any way you wanted to better as a favorite, as a dog overall, not making you money. But she has come through before as a plus 105 underdog against Hannah Goldie, so hey. It's like the New York lottery. You never know, right? Uh, but <laughs> I look at this and I say, it is a little bit like playing lotto, but I do think it's got to be a clear dog or pass situation. I don't, I can't justify Molly McCann at 70 plus percent. All righty, folks. Next up, we got Charles Johnson Energy taking on Azat Maxim. Frankly, I don't remember as at Maxim's game too well, but I have a strong feeling he's going to win this fight. <laughs> uh, he went out there, he beat Tyson Nam in his UFC debut, and he did it by split decision. Um, he has a bunch of wins via choke on his record. I like to see that. Seems like he fought a pretty tough regional scene in Kazakhstan, mostly guys that had winning records, um, especially of late, more recently. As for Charles Johnson, though, he's definitely fought the better level of competition overall. Fought Rafael Estevam, Cody Durden, Ode Osborne, Jimmy Flick, Zalga Zumagulov, Mohamed Mukhaev, Carlos Mota. Those are all UFC-level fighters right there. So he's definitely going out there and putting it all on the line. But if you have to criticize Charles Johnson, it's just not enough initiative in his fights. He's a little bit too accepting of what his opponents want to do. He's a little bit too reactive at times. He says he's going to change all that. He says he's going to do it different. But it's almost a believe it when you see it with Charles Johnson. And what surprises me here is the line. You know, I expected this to be minus 2XX, something like that. But I think people maybe are thinking, hey, you know, this guy's got the UFC level experience. Maybe they're betting on Charles Johnson for that reason. But I do think an undefeated guy in Azad Maxim, um, you know, 17 and 0, great record on paper, probably going to attract a lot of betting attention. And he's not like Shavkat going out there and finishing everybody. Uh, but he is going out there and finishing most of his opponents um, and also going out there and getting all the wins so far. So I like what I've seen from Azat Maxim um, that I can remember. But frankly, guys, there's just too many fights, too many fighters. I got to go back and watch a little bit more tape to give you guys a full-fledged opinion on that one. But for me, you know, the undefeated Kazakh, 17-0, that's really hard for me to fade, especially with a guy like Charles Johnson who could be cut with a loss in this fight. Next up, guys, let's move to Temba Garimbo taking on Pete Rodriguez. And this is a fight where I'm a Temba Garimbo mark, all right? I've always loved Temba. I liked him when he came to the UFC. I've always wanted him to win. I always root for him. When he loses, I'm disappointed. But, um, you know, he's been doing a lot better in his recent fights. He's been getting better. And I've communicated with Temba. I've spoken to him in the DMs. He's a real sweetheart of a guy. Um, and I, I think that he's a serious fighter, man. I think he's all in. I think he really wants to be here. I think he really works hard. Uh, and I think he tries to surround himself with people. I think he's coachable. I think he wants to learn. I think he wants to get better. 
Um, is he the best fighter I've ever seen? Oh, God, no, he's not. But what is he? He's a hard worker. He means well. He's going to get in there and keep trying and keep getting better. And uh, I just think he's going to go out there and fight for your money. So when I look at a guy like Themba, I say, man, he's got some, um, you know, uh, ability. He's got heart. Uh, and I think he's got some charisma as well. I think people are interested in his story. I think people like, um, you know, what Themba brings to the table. And, you know, last time out, I had Themba Garimbo uh, against Sato, and I had Themba Garimbo inside the distance. And, um, you know, I, I don't think that this is like a, a easy click at like a minus 225 or something like that, but I'll wait and I'll see if more money comes in on the Pete Rodriguez side. I really hope so. And, um, you know, I, I like them, but just overall, I think that he's getting better with the grappling. I think he's got a great frame. Uh, and I think that he was too anxious when he first came to the UFC. Frankly, I think he should have submitted AJ Fletcher. I think he was a better fighter than AJ, but I think he made a couple critical mistakes. I think he was jittery. I think he was panicky. I think he couldn't believe he made it to the UFC. I think now that he has a lot of his financial security and things like that, I think there's just a lot more, um, you know, focus from Themba Garimbo. So, I, I like Themba to get the win here, and I think he's going to do it inside the distance, actually. I think Pete Rodriguez slows down. I think he's very hittable. Um, so, yeah, I just don't I don't like what I've seen uh, from Pete Rodriguez, and, you know, beating Mike Jackson tells me almost nothing. Um, so, yeah, that's how I feel about it, guys. I think Themba's going to get the job done here, but uh, don't love the price. Next up, guys, we've got Blake Builder taking on Jiang Yiang Lee. And this is a fascinating one as well because we've got a Road to UFC winner. We've got Road to UFC going on on the same night, I believe. So a little bit of uh, product placement there. But we've got the 33-year-old Blake Builder here. And, you know, for me, Blake has just never really done it. You know, uh, that loss to Kyle Nelson, I, I kind of saw coming a little bit. Um you know, I saw that as a very live possibility. I think I picked that in my Roto Grinders article. As a as a matter of fact, um, Kyle Nelson by decision. And reason being, you look at Blake Builder. He's got a game that is kind of designed to like meme out wins or lose. You know, um, if you look, he's been a lot more flashy and gimmicky in his wins. Four wins via submission, one win via knockout, three via decision. But if you look at those decision wins over zero and one. Julian Baez, a uh, split draw against three and three, Dennis Linton, uh, win over five, eight and one, Darion Chapman via uh, unanimous decision, and a win over Shane Young. And guys, Shane Young, I believe, has been cut from the organization. I do think he's one of the worst, um, you know, featherweights on the roster. Like if you were trying to match up somebody to get a win, you would pick Shane Young. Um, then you look at the Kyle Nelson fight. And, um, you know, that was in Canada, I believe. They sent him out there to get beat by the Canadian in Canada. Tough sledding. Now he's got the road to UFC guy on the night of road to UFC. That seems like a tough, uh, you know, mission as well. And, you know, talking about anthropomorphic advantages, we've got a much younger fighter, 28 versus 33. We've got two inches of height, uh, 5'10 versus 5'8. And we've got a significant reach advantage, 73 inches against 68.5, according to topology. So I think the Jiang Yang Lee is an interesting spot this weekend. Uh, but I will just say that, you know, big social media underdog is Blake Builder, right? 200,000 Instagram followers, nothing to sneeze at there. Um, you know, he's a guy that seems pretty popular, uh, especially among these preliminary fighters. And Jiang Yang Lee 
it's the opposite, right? 11,000, people don't really know who he is. So maybe they're trying to build him with a win over Blake Builder. I think that's a very uh, live possibility because Blake's also a little bit of an older guy for this division. I don't think he's necessarily that same tier of prospect. But I have to watch more tape on the uh, Jiang Yang Lee side. What I do remember about Blake Builder is he likes to throw some combinations with the hands. He does have a pretty slick back take series. Um, you know, he can go out there and, and get some wins. But a lot of the time, guys, I felt like he was losing fights and finding ways to win. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I don't know that it's sustainable. And so for me, I don't like the Blake Builder side. I think that Jiang Yang Lee is going to get it done here. But I don't like laying chalk on, you know, debutante type fighters, you know, minus 150 range, 60%. I can't really say I'm more confident than that to get say I'm getting value on the line. So no need to bet here, but I'm taking Jiang Yang Lee for my initial pick on this fight. And there's no real uh, st st statistical significance, excuse me, um, to speak about on that fight from a uh, analytic standpoint or trends. Next up, we've got some analytics and. Uh, trends to talk about with Julija Stoliarenko and Luana Carolina with this next women's fight. And Luana Carolina is uh, coming into this fight as the underdog plus 115. And Luana Carolina is also, um, you know, the Brazilian, right? She's slightly younger here, just two months. So a lot of uh, parody in this matchup. But, uh, you know, one of the things that's interesting here is that Luana Carolina if you look at her betting results, as an underdog, she's 3-3 three and three in the UFC for a 48% ROI. Overall, 49.8% ROI in the company. Pretty good stuff. As for Julisha Stoliarenko, she's 0-1 as a UFC favorite, and she's not been profitable. If you backed her in the UFC, 2-5 and five overall for a minus 25.3% ROI. Now, in my case, guys, I will say, I bet Julisha Stoliarenko on the money line against Julisha. Uh, Julia Avila for quarter unit. That was stupid, and I lost money. Um, I bet Julia Stoliarenko bigly at plus 155 against Jessica Rose Clark, and I felt good about that. And then I bet her as a favorite against Chelsea Chandler, and I felt like an idiot. So I've made money betting on her. I made money betting on Alexis Davis via decision. I made money betting on Stoliarenko sub one and sub against Jessica Rose Clark. So I've done very well betting on Stoliarenko. But I think that Stoliarenko is a little bit fraudulent. She's got good grappling, but it's a little one note. She likes that arm bar. She doesn't do much of anything else. She's got some power on the feet, um, but she's really hittable as well. She doesn't have very good defense or anything much to speak of in that department. So the Ivana Petrovic fight is literally a fight so bad I don't remember it. I literally don't remember that fight happening. I don't know who Ivana Petrovic is, so I'll have to go back and rewatch that. I watch every fight, and I don't remember it, so... That's ironic. But in any case, Joanne Wood losing that fight via split decision, I thought that probably should have went Luana's way. Um, very controversial fight, close fight, and could have went either way, certainly. The spinning back elbow lost to Molly McCann. Close fight, um, you know, but Molly McCann, you know, on the night was not going to be denied. So I think that, uh, you know, certainly some positive notes from Luana Carolina include the Lupita Godinez unanimous decision, stuffed the takedowns in rounds two and three. That was a good look. Paulina Bitello, a bigger girl, stronger, was able to get the win there as well. Ariane Lipsky, that's a tough one, uh, but Ariane Lipsky is obviously very violent, the queen of violence. So she was able to get that knee bar, but a little bit of a strange position, a little bit 
uh, uncharacteristic of her offensive attack as well. Beat Priscilla Cachoeira, who's one of the worst fighters in the UFC's history. So <laughs> good on you. But Luana's basically just got a big, awkward body. It's not easy to take down. And um, I think that Stoliarenko could easily submit her in the first round. But if that doesn't happen, I think that Luana Carolina is going to turn into the in-fight live betting favorite after round one. So for me, it uh, feels like a dogger pass situation. And uh, maybe you look for the props on the uh, Stoliarenko side. But I also don't want to oversimplify this fight. So I will tape it and, and come up with a little bit more of a granular opinion. But for me, I just know that Stoliarenko is kind of a one-track fighter. Goes out there looking for the armbar, does gas out with some regularity, has had weight issues throughout her career, has a ton of red flags. So at chalk, don't feel great about it, but she is coming off the biggest marketing push of her career. She did get that win over Molly McCann. You beat somebody big, you take their hype. So something to keep in mind, but both of them on the same card again. And I think both of them could lose here. So whatever, we'll have to wait and see. Next up, guys, we got Markel Maderos taking on Landon Quinones. This is the fight I do not have much to say, frankly, um, because both these guys are guys that I need to familiarize myself with more. Markel Maderos, I got his fight wrong, I believe, on the Contender Series. Isa Isakov looked like a marketable guy, you know, handsome enough, big muscle guy. But overall, Maderos was just moving faster. He was slicker, and uh, he got the win there. So hats off to him. I was just dead wrong about that fight. But when you look at Landon Quinones, he stepped up on short notice and did very well against Nazareth Hackparast. He gave him an honest fight. And Nazareth's been looking better in his recent performances. You know, the loss to Jason Knight looked terrible. Um, you know, the way that he went down uh, in that fight, I did not like to see. Um, you know, so I do think Maderos uh, coming out of Factory X does not have any submission wins on his record. But if he's ever to break out a submission game, uh, now might be the time to do it, right? Because Landon Quinones did look like a fish out of water against Jason Knight, who is admittedly a black belt. But Muhammad Naimov was another guy who people did not rate, who people thought was a bum, who people thought they stunk. And uh, he's been going out there getting results in the UFC because of his physicality and his willingness to do whatever it takes to win, right? Cheat, lie, steal, whatever it takes. But um, you look those are the losses. So none of them are really egregious, right? He hasn't lost anybody where you're like, man, this guy really stinks, but he's also just never really done anything where you're like, man, this guy's somebody to pay attention to no wins. that I'm like, man, this one's blowing my hair back. So I think Landon Quinones is kind of just a all arounder 28 years of age, a lone wolf, interesting nickname there. I think there's a couple lone wolves on this card. Um, and Markel Medeiros on the other side, is coming off that contender series rub, is coming off that big win. So maybe people are going to be a little too hyped on that side. But um, I just don't really have a great read on this fight until I dig in more. So I will come back to you guys with more information later in the week. Um, but we don't really have a, st a statistically significant sample for those guys either to talk about betting trends. Last but not least, guys, we got Thomas Peterson, I called this man's first ever career win by submission in his last fight on the contender series. I was very proud of that fact. Patrons got that one as well. I think it was like plus 1100, plus 1200, whatever it was at the time. Very good stuff. However, Chandler Cole was a much different ballgame, in my humble opinion, to Jamal Pogues. Um, Chandler Cole was a guy that had a wrestling background, this and that. But frankly, if between, um, you know, he did not have the body. Uh, the physicality, uh, the preparedness, I did not think for the fight. Um, he looked to be a little bit out of shape overall. 
I did not think he carried his weight well enough as a professional athlete with no disrespect intended. So I think that when you looked at that, you know, that was a very winnable fight for Peterson. And I, I just felt like he was willing and able to attack those short arm lock series. So I, I called it, you know, almost to a T there. Um, however, Jamal Pogues is not an easy mark like that. He's been submitted before, but he's been submitted by good guys. He's been submitted earlier in his career, and it was at the middleweight division. Uh, in this division, I think of Jamal Pogues as a guy who's probably an underrated grappler, frankly. You know, got multiple takedowns against um, – Josh Parisian. And I think that when you look, oh, inter interesting. Uh, Dixon says Liam Rich, JWB is all over Pogues here. Um, I don't like Pogues at all. Listen, I think that Pogues is not a great fighter, but what I'll tell you is I think people might underrate Pogues here now. Um, and the reason being is Mick Parkin was set up for success, which I said at the time. Um, you know, I didn't know who was going to win the fight, but I just felt like it was set up for success. And Mick Parkin was training with Tom. He's training in London. Crowd's going to go wild for him. And Pogues has flown over there, looked fat, looked unprepared. I feel like, you know, Pogues has a statement uh, to make here. You know, I feel like Pogues feels disrespected. I feel like he's embarrassed. And I think he's going to show up in a lot better shape this time. So um, the problem I have with Peterson, you look at that Waldo Costa, uh, Acosta Cortez fight. Waldo looked like he had him out of sorts in round three. He looked like he was very tired. He looked like he was becoming extremely hittable um, and predictable with his shots. And um, Waldo did not look great in his last fight. Um, Jamal Pogues, on the other hand, he actually had submission wins on his uh, amateur run. You know, I think he started his career professionally with a submission win, and he hasn't turned to that in a long time. But I don't think that Peterson has this massive grappling edge here. Like, I think he could probably get takedowns in round one, but I don't know that he could do that. And I think that if Pogues is on top, Pogues might be a more savvy operator um, with more experience in those uh, phases of the fight. So for me, dogger pass situation, greasy heavyweight type of fight. And um, yeah, I, I could get creative with the props there when they open up. Um, I'll let you guys know, but uh yeah, I just think it's a fascinating fight, and I just don't think it's an easy run-over match. If I could see Pogues just sticking him with a jab from the outside, defending the takedowns and winning the fight. So um, there you have it, guys. 90 minutes, 13 fights. I had an absolute blast. We're here in the morning trying something a little bit different. I hope that you guys have enjoyed it. And I want to just leave you guys with a couple quick housekeeping notes and, uh, and you know, news items for the show, let's say. So number one. I'm expecting to announce a sponsor later in the week on uh, Bets and Banter. Really excited about it. Great person in the community uh, that I'm working with. And I'm just excited about the partnership. I'm excited about the product. Um, and I'm excited to share it with you guys. So that's something that I want you guys to be excited for. Want to put it on your radar now. Um, so you guys expect that. And uh, there'll be more information to come, obviously, very shortly. As for uh, what to expect the rest of this week, I got more content coming always on Twitter. So if you guys are interested in getting more fight tape, some breakdowns, some free games, some free information, I'm always going to drop that on Twitter as well. So follow me there. Um, follow me right here. Get subscribed. Make sure you drop a like on the video. Really helps to grow the channel. Helps other people find the videos, which I really appreciate. I put a lot of time, effort, and energy into these things. Um, you know, from the uh, trends and data, which I, you know, ascertain myself, 
to some of the things that I figure out from the social media end of things. Again, that's all uh, proprietary information. I figured that out myself, trying to put you guys in a position to succeed. Um, and so I've had a blast doing it. And I'll tell you guys this. We have a show up already on podcast, which is the main event breakdown. So if you guys just want to hear that, that's already available on podcast platforms. My goal is to get this time stamped and on podcast today by the end of the day. Um, so I'm trying to get more diligent about putting that up right away. Uh, but you guys can always know my shows are going to come out first here on YouTube, but I try and get that ad free uh, version as quickly as possible available for the audio only homies. So appreciate you guys for that. Uh, it is not bet openly uh, Dixon, but I appreciate you asking my brother. Um, and what I will say is, um, you know, if I, if it wasn't valuable to me, I would never share it with you guys, but um, I think that the person behind it, great person. And I think that the product is a great product. So extremely excited to share more information. I'll leave it there. But the last thing I'll say, guys, is uh, if you're looking for more information from me, where I'm getting these trends, data information from, all that is down in the description box below. You can easily find more of my work there. If you're looking for my written content, I write for Action Network. I write for um, uh, Roto Grinders. I write for scoresandodds.com. So you can find more content from me there as well. All of that uh, is in the description below. If you guys have questions, comments, concerns about this fight card, about cards that are coming up, uh, about content that you want to see, please go ahead and drop that in the comment section down below. Happy to get back to you guys. Happy to answer those questions. Try and be extremely responsive in the comment section as well. Um, so if you guys are respectful with your disagreements, if you're respectful with your questions, I'm always happy uh, to try and get back to you guys with whatever I possibly can to help put you in a position to succeed. And with that being said, God bless you all. Enjoy the fights and come back next time because we're having all the same fun again. Good luck on UFC Vegas 85, everybody. Thank you.